Welcome, everyone, to an exciting episode of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring yours truly, Dr. Brian Keating, alongside a friend, a mentor, a past guest, and a chapter in one of my books, John Mather, who's the senior project scientist of the James Webb Space Telescope. And if you've been paying attention to the news or know anybody uh, in the world, you know that the James Webb Space Telescope released its first images and spectra this very week. And I'm so pleased that I had the opportunity to talk to anybody from the Webb Telescope during what must have been an incredibly uh, ambitious and incredibly exciting and demanding week for any scientist, but especially to talk to the senior scientist like John who is not only a Nobel laureate, but also an incredibly uh, in-demand scientist for comments and and, uh, for actually setting the stage and the direction of instruments like Webb and and being at NASA for as long as he has been, basically his whole career. He's extremely connected to the future projects that NASA itself is going to be producing, not just the phenomenal science that he and his colleagues get to work on. So I released a video this week, earlier this week, In that video, uh, I went through the five images or so that Webb released to the public with my interpretation and a little bit more information. I did release that as a podcast as well, uh, although you certainly should check out my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating, where I solicited questions from you, the audience, uh, for John Mather coming up for the interview that you're about to hear. So not only by uh, subscribing to the YouTube channel where you get to see the stunning visual delights and uh, some animations and some explainer um, content that I put together after the uh, description of the images and the spectrum, but uh, but you'll also get to ask questions of all my upcoming guests, and there's a huge number of them in the can, so to speak, not the you know kind of bathroom. Don't that would be weird, but uh, but in the can in the context of we've recorded and are processing, and a lot of these guests, the majority in fact, have come on the YouTube channel when the um, interview is premiering, and so therefore you can communicate with the, the guest. We had that with Anna Aegis recently, Will Kinney. Um, and uh, and we'll have it again uh, in about a week from the time you're listening to this interview with Govert Schelling, who's a renowned author, a science author of many books. But this particular book is called The Elephant in the Universe, and he's written about the 100 years quest to understand dark matter. So that's coming up soon. That, for anybody who detects it, will certainly result in a Nobel Prize. Uh, but it may not exist, according to my upcoming, upcoming guest uh, after that, whose name is uh, Mordecai, a.k.a. Mutti Milgram, who's a scientist in Israel who works on alternatives to dark matter instead of looking for tiny particles, which we haven't seen for many, many decades, uh, Mati and collaborators and and, uh, allied uh, theoreticians predict that there might need to be a modification to not only Isaac Newton's theory of gravity, but Einstein's as well. So stay tuned for that. Now we're going into the impossible with Dr. John Mather from a live Q&A session that he was so kind and generous and gracious as he always is. Uh, You can find out more about John in my second book, uh, which is called Into the Impossible, Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, available in all formats. and you can even find a sub podcast and a sub playlist on my YouTube channel where you can watch the whole interview for free. Uh, but the book is uh, is quite fun because it's really distilled down to the most uh, delightful, important, and keen nuggets. And we'll have more Nobel Prize winners coming up. Uh, have an interview with Bill Phillips. You'll hear about that. Did one recently with Adam Reese as well. Uh, and uh, stay tuned. I'm still trying to get more of these really uh, just just as I say, gracious and generous individuals who do what I believe I need to do, which is to have the moral obligation, the moral courage to give back to the public. I don't charge for this. Um, I do like it when you support the sponsors. That does help. But but in reality, I don't, I don't really make any money from this project, but I do get tremendous satisfaction. <clears throat> and 
I hope that you'll share the channel and the, and the podcast with your friends, and I'll have uh, more to say about that at the end. But for now, sit back and enjoy this ride into the impossible with Brian Keating, yours truly, and Dr. John Mather, who is an incredible mensch, as you will soon hear, if you didn't know already, answering so many questions in, in the rapid-fire uh, segment at the end. Enjoy. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. <clears throat> the power of the internet. All right, there we are. We are live with a titanic figure in my life and in cosmology and astronomy, Dr. John Mather, senior project scientist of the James Webb Space Telescope, which has been in the news for some reason. Uh, we, we don't know. I mean, maybe it's because uh, John, uh, his his chapter in, in this book, which he doesn't even have a copy of, Into the Impossible. Uh, this I'm going to send you right after this interview, John, forgive me. Uh, John, how are you feeling? How are you doing right now? I'm great, and I'm greatly relieved because uh, now that we've gotten to this point, uh, I'm just beginning to think of all the things that were dangerous along the way. <laughs> yes, everything that could have gone wrong didn't didn't go or could have gone wrong didn't go wrong, but it still must have been incredibly nerve-wracking. Uh, nerve we've survived everything. Yeah, well, I wasn't nervous, but maybe I should have been. Other people <laughs> were because they were actually taking care of all those things that I should have worried about. And so plenty of people were nervous doing their job. So anyway, yeah. We're so appreciative and so thrilled that it worked perfectly. It is so perfect. It's beyond expectation. It's it's almost beyond hopes. So uh, that the optical quality is brilliant. So we promised diffraction limited quality images at two microns wavelength, and it's almost twice as good as that. And John, just from a human perspective, I believe you started working on this in 1995. Um, I did. Kobe was still going on back then. How did you? How did this work for you? What was this career step like for you? How did you have the courage to do this? And, and what does it mean after almost 30 years? Oh my goodness. Well, Kobe was just finishing. We launched the Kobe in 1989 and we ran it for four years. So um, I was more or less finished with my part uh, by 1995. And I'm thinking what to do next. And I was surprised. I got a phone call from NASA headquarters. Would you like to work on this new mission? We're starting a study. And I thought, absolutely, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard of. I want to work on this, and I still think it's the coolest thing. <laughs> and that's saying a lot, because Kobe uh, changed changed my life because it happened right when I was starting graduate school back at Brown. I see. Yeah, yeah, it certainly did. And it changed your life too. Uh, uh, eventually, you would uh, win a Nobel Prize with with George Smoot uh, for that work. Um, did you have? I know, like those of us that have children are blessed to have children. Those of us that are blessed to have more than one child, we always say when they're when they ask us. I used to ask my mom. You know, we have there are four of us, four of us brothers. I said, Mom, who's your favorite kid? She said, That's like asking me to choose my favorite arm. And I'd say, Mom, you're right. You're left-handed. You're left-handed, Mom. Come on. Uh, of all the stuff that that Webb can do, do you have a favorite? Well, I just uh, I think taking pretty pictures is my emotional favorite. So what's the science behind that? Well, the first objects that grew out of the Big Bang material—that's the continuation of my fascination with the history of the universe. Something's out there that we didn't expect. I think so. So just recently, we're just getting a, a hint from theoretical predictions about how the first gigantic black holes might have grown. Mm -hmm. It's one of those top mysteries of science. We, we uh, detected the dark matter effects. We detected the effects of dark energy. 
and we still do not know what made the giant black holes grow. We know little ones can grow from、uh, stars that blow up,、uh, but we can't really figure out how the big ones got there. And since there's a big one in the middle of every galaxy, that's a disaster for comprehension. We got to deal with this. So、um, we got predictions, of course, but now we have to get pictures and data. And so that's one of our top challenges. Yeah, yeah,、uh, indeed. So I was able to take、uh, take some questions from my audience of over a hundred thousand people that are part of this project that I call Into the Impossible. It's your second time. On the podcast, and I'm so、uh, so grateful that you、uh, took this time during this week. We only have about 20 minutes、uh, before your next series of meetings,、uh, but、um, but I wanted to maybe start off with、uh, just a personal question,、uh, not a personal, a question for me.、Um, when we look at the results and the impact they're having on society as a whole. Um, what, to what do you attribute this fascination? Is it the pretty picture phenomenon, or is it really the 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 public has gotten accustomed to these fantastic not only images but the data from things like Hubble and things like、uh, all the other great NASA projects and ground-based projects too? What、um, what do you attribute the the fascination of the public? This is so arcane and and it took so long. Why is the public so interested in this?、Um, I. I think they're interested in the same question I'm interested in. Where did we come from? What's the history? How did we go from an expanding universe with the hot and cold spots in it that we measured with the COBE to here we are having our little planet that's a nice place to live? How did that happen? And there's so many steps that astronomers can work on:、uh, the formation of the stars and the galaxies and the black holes and all that stuff. How did the planets grow?、Uh, and、uh, of course, we want to know. And we also really want to know: Are we alone? Everybody wants to know that.、Uh, my personal opinion is: No, we're not alone. But the neighbors are really far away. In other words, a good a good planet is hard to find. And even though we know most stars have planets, and、uh, quite a few,、uh, we have not found any systems that resemble our own solar system yet.、Mm. Which is to say,、uh, three or four little rocky planets in the middle, then、uh, four or so big. Uh, cold gas giants way out there.、Uh, we don't have anything like that to point at in what we've found so far. So what's the going on? Our solar system might be special. So we know Earth is already special here in the solar system. It's the only place where we can live. And、um, so what's going on? How come? There's a lot of mystery here. And of course, we all want to know: Is there life on Mars? And we can find out by going there and getting some pieces and bringing them back. How about other places in the solar system that are maybe possible, like Europa, where there's a, an ocean under the ice, or how about on Titan, where there's、uh, lakes and rivers of methane and ethane?、Um, stuff could be happening that we could find by actually bringing pieces home.、And、that would be even. Maybe even more exciting than our beautiful pictures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And actually, that dovetails nicely with、uh, with the first question that I received from one of my listeners. And just a reminder: on my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating, you can submit questions、uh, for almost all my guests. I always give a preview of who's coming up next. And I had on、uh, not, maybe not so near neighbor to you、uh, as well, nearer than those aliens that you talked about, John.、Uh, and that was Bill Phillips. Of、uh, NIST and Gathersburg, he was on recently.、Mm-hmm. I solicited questions. His episode's coming soon. But the first question does involve planets, 
Uh, and it's from April Van Ryan. And she asks, uh, my main question is, does Webb have the potential to see a small rocky planet close to us? And what is Miri likely to see when she's used to her maximum potential? I have a billion questions, but those are the first ones. So I guess it's about it's about Miri and about the small rocky planets. The WASP-96b, which uh, you did release a spectrum of this week, your team, uh, is is a gas giant, uh, not unlike Jupiter as I understand it. Uh, but, but can you see a small rocky planet like the distance from the Earth to the sun? We can see them indirectly. We see them when they go in front of their star. It's called transiting. Uh, and uh, well, here in the solar system, we watched Venus do a transit across the sun a little while back, and the sun detect got an extremely tiny bit fainter for a little while because some starlight, sunlight was blocked. We do the same thing with uh, little planets way out there. Uh, we will have several dozen planets in the first year, including about two dozen little ones. Uh, but unfortunately for us, the only ones we can study are the ones that orbit very small stars, uh, M stars, they're called. And so the planets are very in very close, and it's a pretty hostile place for a planet. So we'll study them. Um, some people think they will surely have atmospheres. Other people think surely they will not. So we will be trying that experiment as soon as possible. Like, I'm not sure when the first ones come up in the schedule, but it's pretty soon. Right. So we'll try that. Uh, so the other thing she was asking was about the MIRI, which is the mid-infrared instrument, and we will be using it for this transit spectroscopy study also. Um, it is neither, none of our instruments are capable of seeing an, a little Earth orbiting uh, a sun-like star. It's just too faint. But uh, we do have pretty good uh, performance for our coronagraphs, which enable us to see brighter planets orbiting their stars. So we are going to be trying that. We're obviously going to try the obvious cases. What about Alpha Centauri? What about Proxima Centauri? We will look. Uh, plenty of people think we won't see anything, but of course we have to look. Yes, that's right. It's, uh, it's the Wayne Gretzky principle. You miss all the shots you don't take. Uh, so, Absolutely. <laughs> but there's yeah. so many, and, and the resolution's so phenomenal. Uh, but I want to go a little bit further out. One of my uh, listeners, or viewers rather, Jimmy Jazzy, Asked the question, um, can Webb rule out or comment on the uniformity of the universe? Uh, exactly, he's referring to the cosmological principle. There's been some um, some claims recently by groups uh, in Europe and other uh, other places that you can actually um, potentially have questions about how much the the CMB dipole and the distribution of quasars and other galaxies align with that or don't. Um, what about going to cosmology in a survey sense? Is Webb equipped or positioned in any way to look at things and, and see potentially to comment on whether or not the cosmological principle might have some some need of an update? Good question. Um, we, of course, did not set out with that as a major objective. Uh, we just said we will study everything you can see with an infrared telescope because it's all new. Um, we got the pioneering observations with the Spitzer telescope. Um, if you want to answer questions about is every place in the sky basically the same, you need to study a lot of sky. So the next big telescope going up for that purpose will be Euclid from Europe. And then the next one after that is ours from NASA. It's called uh, Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. It's a uh, 2.4 meter diameter, same as Hubble, but takes 100 times as much sky at one bite. So it will be really good at surveying to look for those cosmological questions. 
is every place really the same or is there some funny business going on um, about the expansion? So too soon to answer your question, but. Mm. Yes, uh, so another listener uh, is asking, viewer HC Traveler is asking, um, can when will the Trappist-1 system or will the Trappist-1 system be viewed by web? Uh, I think we're starting right away because it's an obvious candidate. I do not remember for sure when the first observations will be. You know, we cannot see every target all year. Um, but I think I heard that this one's coming up soon. Mm. So uh, how does the prioritization work? Again, you know, thinking back to children and, you know, we scientists are kind of like children. You know, we, we're curious, we're imaginative, but, you know, we don't play well with others. We don't like to share our toys with us. How, how do you prioritize? You know, I mean, among all these phenomenal science goals that you have equipment to look at, how do you prioritize today? We're going to look at this tomorrow. We're going to look at that. Okay. Well, of course, we do it with committees. So that's the natural thing for astronomers. Uh, Will Hordick, you, you, you have to send us a proposal, Brian. If you want to observe something with a telescope, you have to write it down, send us in for uh, a discussion. And you have to prove that this is a good idea and that you know what to do with the data when we give it to you. Uh, and by the way, you are supposed to tell us everything about the concept, but you're not supposed to tell us who you are. We want to review this with not, without knowing whether you're, um, I don't know, we, we just want to be fair as much as possible. So one curious result of that is that about 10% of the proposals we chose were submitted by graduate students. So this is really great for young people to get in. Uh, we welcome that. And it's a, it's a lovely surprise that so many young people have succeeded by, by writing the best proposals. Um, and oh, and of course, now if you choose which organizations are going to get the picture, then you say, now what time of year are we going to observe it? And so that's governed by a calendar. When are they in the line of sight? When can the telescope point at that target? How long will web last in an optimistic uh, scenario? How many years? We, we um, are expecting at least 20. Uh, we were ex requiring 10 uh, or even five, but we got a really good launch a basically perfect launch from the Ariane 5. And so we didn't have to use any extra fuel for compensating for its errors. And now it turns out we're not even using up fuel as fast as we thought we would. So maybe even more than 20 years is possible. So um, if you've just been born, you might still have a chance to use this telescope. Hmm. <laughs> That's right. So some of our graduate students, graduate students, uh, hopefully will be working on this, our grand students. Uh, WD asked a question, uh, thanks you for your great service, giving us eyes we've never had before. My question is now that JWST is a reality, are there any projects on the horizon that not only will self-assemble the way that uh, the, web, the web did, but maybe you self-replicate? Could you see a telescope factory in L2 uh, the way that that uh, that web is but making other uh, uh, other telescopes for the future is that even a conceivable possibility well people like to speculate about that and and they we draw sketches of how we would do it um, but so far it looks kind of fanciful because we haven't gotten to the first steps uh, everything we've done in space uh, required astronauts to put it together um, so web is uh, sort of the most elaborate uh, self-assembling thing we've done for astronomy and it was pretty scary yeah. because, you know, when you put it together, you say, what if it doesn't work? Oh, my gosh, what do we do then? And that is so well, when we started, it was impossible. Now it is possible to get a rocket out there with help. Um, but 
Um, so we do design our next missions with this in mind, the possibility of sending help, either robotic or human. Uh, but at least web was done without that possibility, and that's right. pretty scary. Yep, As you, you took the advice, you went into the impossible, you did the impossible. Uh, Missy Carr is a good friend, she's saying, this is so great, thank you, you're the coolest thing. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the question is now about in our solar system, what can it do uh, with regard to, say, Europa? Can we look at Europa, and where's most of the exoplanet science going to come from with web? Is it images or spectrum? Oh, okay. Well, first Europa, we will be watching Europa because uh, it's got an ocean with ice over it and there are cracks in the ice where water comes spitting out and we discovered that with Hubble. Uh, we will be looking at those same places with the web to see can we see it with infrared signals and I don't know. Just, we will try it. Um, and why would we care? Well, you'll learn something with web, but we're also planning to send a mission out there uh, to fly through those plumes of water and see do they have other molecules in them, like organic molecules. And I don't know whether they do or not, but personally my guess is that ocean could be alive. Why not? And in that case, uh, look for complicated molecules. Uh, so we'll do that. So the other question was more about uh, what are we going to observe uh, about exoplanets. And so we'll be working on the easy ones and the hard ones. The easy ones are the big ones, like the one we already showed. Um, where it's a big planet uh, and uh, obscure, obscures quite a lot of the starlight, and we already know that it's got water in it. Uh, but when we say water, we really mean steam, because that planet, um, it's right in there close by to its star. And so um, we will be looking at a wide variety of these things, some hot and some cold, uh, some big and some small, because um, we just do not really know where to look. Uh, we should look at everything. Mm -hmm. um, don't just look where it's easy, look where it's hard. Um, don't assume you know the answer of what, what the right place to look is. As you know, everything about exoplanets was a big surprise. Uh, when Mayor and Kelos looked at their uh, data to see if there was a planet there, they didn't expect it. Other people had taken data and they hadn't even looked at the data to see if there was a planet in there because, of course, who wants one of those? Um, we want Earth. Well, there wasn't any Earth in that system, but there were these other remarkable surprises, and everything's been a surprise. So I don't know what the next big surprise will be. Maybe it'll be all those little rocky planets have atmospheres. Maybe it'll be that none of them do. And uh, too bad. Um, no, that's You can't do chemistry on nothing, so go build the next telescope. That's what that'll tell us. <laughs> yeah, there are questions about that, too. Maybe uh, just... just when we look out at the you know, current data, uh, it's just astonishing to think that you started working on this project in 95, and that's when the first exoplanets were really you know, coming to the light of reality. And, and so that wasn't, as I remember, that wasn't really part of the original mission design, I mean, of, of Webb, but it kind of has become this, this almost unique niche that Webb can, can accomplish. I, I wonder, John, can you talk a little bit about the partnership between experimentalists like, like you, um, and, 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 and observers, but also a theorist. A question is coming in about, about that. Is there, what kind of tight-knit you know, partnership? I remember on Kobe, from an outsider's perspective, you benefited tremendously from the involvement of theorists. Um, how does that work with Webb? How, how, how do, is, is there still an opportunity for theoretical contributions, or is it um, basically they're going to look at the data and like everybody else? How, how does that work? Okay, well, it's um, sort of a lot of different phases of a project. When uh, an instrumenter like me says, well, I've got an idea, 
oh, that's cool. That's just an idea. Well, why would you want to do that? And then you have to say, if you could do it, what would you find? Yeah. Um, what might you find? What are the mysteries that that would really address? So uh, for that, we need imagination. We need the people who have already done the work of observing and they say, well, I can't see far enough. Or the people who do the calculations see, I imagine that this could be, but how can you tell? So we can't get the resources to build that equipment unless you tell us to. Hmm. So that's at the beginning. Then after we do get along the ways, then uh, suddenly theorists say, uh, I better predict what they're going to see before they see it. So I can get my credit for my proper kind of imagination. And that happened with the COBE satellite. When we started, there was no period prediction anybody could believe. Uh, by the time we launched, there were some really good predictions. And some people got it right, what hmm. we would see. Uh, other people were completely amazed. They thought, oh, that can't be right. So um, when uh, when we published the map of the anisotropy with the hot and cold spots, there were a few people that had a, a, a pre-written scientific paper that was only waiting for the information to come from our data release. And in a day, they had it submitted. So we expect some of that for the web as well. Um, we know, we told people what data we would take. Uh, and when, and they will be ready to plug it into their papers and say, here we are. We know what that means. <laughs> so, John, I know you only have about five minutes left. I want to be so respectful of your time. Uh, we have so many questions. People are just so delighted that you're taking your time. And you're, you're, you've always been a public servant in such a wonderful way, both as an inspiration to young scientists like when I was young. I'm not young anymore, <laughs> but but my current students, but also to the public. You, you do such incredible outreach. I want to commend you for that because not all scientists do that. I always make fun of science. I say you have a moral obligation <laughs> to be uh, to do outreach to my fellow colleagues. Uh, I want to do kind of rapid fire just because uh, there's so many questions that are coming in. Andy Oates, who's a very good friend of the show, he asks, is there a, uh, a chance that the first definitive detection of an exomoon could come from JWST? Oh, I would love it, but I don't expect it. Okay. Um, I don't know how you do it. Mm. I know theoretical predictions have been made, but I don't think anyone predicts that we could be able to do it. This is really, really hard. Yeah. And it may, some claim it's important to the establishment of life that we have the moon to block, uh, you know, asteroid impacts and so forth. So uh, who knows? Uh, it, it may keep the neighbors even farther away from us. Uh, Gunnar McStabby, yeah. which is kind of a scary name, he asks, uh, are there models? of what look like SMACs, what, what the SMACs cluster would look like uh, in previous uh, uh, previous years uh, versus today. Is there any way to, to do a differential between these very distant galaxies and see how many more galaxies are the universe, is the universe producing more galaxies that we could see from the web data that you have? Okay, well, I don't know about that specific place, but we do have movies uh, that are made by supercomputers. Oh, really? You say, I know how the universe started. I've got the hot and cold spots. I know gravity works this way. Um, start the computer running and simulate everything. And you can get beautiful movies of how the galaxies grow. And, um, and we have gotten pretty far with that project. Um, not only can you make movies about how the galaxy stuff would grow, but you can even now make simulated web telescope images. Since a web telescope image is not a movie, it's a sort of snapshot of uh, pieces of the universe at all different times from now all the way back as far as you can go into the distant past. So uh, superposition of movies of different places, all seen in one picture. So we can do that now. And uh, someday somebody will be able to answer this question well, but not today. <laughs> 
Uh, so question coming in again from Ollie Wright, who's a good friend. Uh, this bears more on uh, on the guest who's chapter one in this book, uh, and that is our good friend Adam Reese. Uh, so you'll get your copy. I'm going to send this out immediately. Your chapter, your chapter eight, but uh, but Adam is very interested in the Hubble tension. So Ollie's asking, are there are there observations planned that will weigh in on the so-called Hubble tension from Webb? Absolutely, it's a top priority. And Adam, of course, has proposal in. I'm not sure when it's scheduled. Uh, it's a hard project um, because what you have to do is survey the universe even more accurately than we've done before. So Webb has the capability in principle to do this, um, but it requires so many steps. Uh, this is a, uh, a curious situation where we use the brightness of objects to determine how far away they are. But now you have to establish that you know how bright they really are. And so this is a pretty tricky problem. So anyway, yeah. Adam's working on it and so his competitors. Yes, so exactly. <laughs> we will see what they get. And uh, uh, the way things usually go is we do not resolve the tension. We just get more and more sure that we're right and the other person is wrong. Uh, but eventually we'll find out. Uh, so in the last minute that you have, uh, John, there's a question. Do you have advice? to people in the field uh, just starting out, maybe young graduate students um, or even undergraduates. Do you have any career advice? We talked about that in the last interview. I'll put a link to John's previous interview and of course to the book uh, as well. Uh, but do you have advice to young people just starting out in astronomy? Yeah, um, I would say that our field is changing rapidly uh, as new technology comes online. And so um, you can't really say, I know what I'm gonna work on uh, in 10 years because it probably hasn't been invented yet. So um, try to get in on the latest wave of things and uh, you may get, catch that wave. And uh, like I've said, uh, graduate students can propose successfully to observe with the web telescope. So don't assume you can't do it just because you're young. Just <laughs> give it a try and see what happens. That's my motto in life. Give it a try and see what happens. <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, so, John, I want to thank you. I know it's uh, it's 10 a.m. out there. You've got another uh, important meeting. Hopefully we'll come back maybe in a few months when we have more phenomenal data sure. from the James Webb yeah. Telescope. For now, I want to thank you. This is uh, John Mather, who's been a titanic figure in cosmology. You don't see me. There's John. Here's a picture. Uh, John, you'll be getting yeah. this book signed copy along uh, with some thank other you, gifts from yours truly. And there will be many other investigators to tell you stories about what is found with the web. Uh, many story. other people that know more about their topic than I can ever know. <laughs> so it will be fun for you, too. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Brian. It's been such a pleasure. Okay. Bye, everybody. Tune in next Bye -bye. time. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that's a wrap on this really rapid fire, but delightful voyage into the impossible my friend and mentor, Dr. John Mather of NASA Goddard. He's been working on Webb for almost 30 years. Can you imagine how he must have felt like right before it lifted off and blasted off, could have blasted apart into trillions of little pieces, but it didn't. And, uh, and it couldn't. And now it's returning such stunning, phenomenal images. So I want to remind you, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. You should. You have a moral obligation to do. No, I'm just kidding. But if you do, you'll be able to ask questions like uh, you heard all these guests. Uh, I, I rarely asked any questions of my own. I wanted to really turn it over to you guys. I, I can hopefully ask John my pressing questions offline. But, uh, but I wanted to ask uh, your questions. And, um, and if you watch the video, you'll even see your name will pop up on, on screen. If you use your real name, <laughs> if you don't, 
there's some noms de plume, nom de guerre um, that's on there as well. Um, so I want to leave you with a small request, two of them. Actually, one is to join my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list, uh, in which case, if you're in the U.S., I can send you a tiny fragment of the proto-solar system uh, called a meteorite. And uh, I can only send those within the U.S. because of mailing restrictions and just cost to me. I, I, you know, I have to go out and get stamps for all these things. Uh, but I'll send you one. Um, and hopefully, if you're not in the U.S., you'll uh, be entered at some point in some giveaways I do of my books uh, in digital content form formats. Um, my audiobook uh, just came out recently, The Dialogue on Two World Systems with John Mather's fellow Nobel laureate, Frank Wilczek and Carlo Rovelli and, and, and my other friends. Uh, and so uh, that's the one thing I want to ask you to do up front. And then the second thing to do after you go to briankeating.com slash list and join up my mailing list is to leave a review or at least a rating, a small constellation, an asterism, as I say, of stars. And I read each and every one. We're up to over 500 worldwide. We're up to 411 when I'm recording this uh, today and uh, in the USA alone. Uh, so no matter where you are, it helps the podcast. So uh, do that. You can uh, just click on your favorite podcast app, usually almost all of them, even uh, Spotify, Audible, and certainly Apple. I'll give you the ability to leave a rating. Um, star, some number of stars, hopefully five stars, although I'll take any. Today, I'm reading to you uh, one of them, which is a four-star review, so it's not perfect, but everyone has room for improvement. Uh, this one has a title, Understandable and Wide-Ranging Podcast, uh, and it's by Autopism. Autotopism. I don't know how to pronounce that name. Um, it's all one big word. Uh, and underneath that, uh, very delightful. So on Apple, you can leave a written review. And if we get to 500 this year, I will stop bugging you to leave reviews. So that should be an incentive for you guys to leave a review. Anyway, Autotopism says, Dr. Keating is jovial, self-effacing, and lets guests make their points. But you will learn a lot. You will learn a lot from the podcast. But I recommend Dr. Keating read the history of the internet on Wikipedia to continue claiming that physicists at CERN are the reason we have the internet is a bit like claiming the post office built all the roads and highways just because it gave people a zip code. Okay, that's fair enough. I don't think I actually said that. But my guest um, uh, Frank Close, who wrote the book about past Nobel laureate Peter Higgs, called Elusive, which was an interview I released a couple weeks ago, he did make that claim. Uh, don't blame me on topism. I don't think I say that. But I agree with you. Anyway. Uh, all of you out there in the Into the Impossible fan base, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, and I can't wait for you to come back with me into the Impossible with more great guests coming up on the podcast. Stay tuned and keep doing magical things.